Hi, you're listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. In the studio today, I have a guy that I hope is going to become a new friend of mine, uh, Mr. John T. Edge. And we're going to talk a little bit about his most recent book, The Potlicker Papers, and talk about all the things that you are doing that have to do with food, which maybe would be a continued show. A show. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks for joining me, Mr. John. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank so, you. You know, I know you're in New Orleans. You're visiting. I am. What's I on, visit often. What's your it. plan whenever? How do you strategize what you're going to do? <laughs> I plan more meals than are possible and somehow make my way to every single one of the meals I planned. Um, I have a lot of friends here. Um, I had a beautiful dinner last night at Upper Line. Um, I think Joanne Clevenger is perhaps the best host um, in America. She is such a welcoming presence, such a generous presence. Um, and we had a big table of 10 with friends old and new. And I had beautiful deck, duck etouffee with pepper Yum. jelly. Um, this gorgeous hunk of drum smothered in brown butter um, in a meniere, actually. Um, and crab. It's a great night. A great night. And many more to unspool as soon as my wife joins me here that later this afternoon. I always ask people, I go, you know, is this your first trip to New Orleans? No. Is this your third trip to New Orleans? Yes. And by then I go, I, ha- I got a guy to find a, I have a realtor for you because you want to move here because you <laughs> love it. And then after that, I say, is your strategy to eat a whole lot the week before so you can stretch your stomach and eat <laughs> more when you get here? Or do you diet because you know the amount of calories that you are going to consume in a weekend in New Orleans? What do you think? I went for a run this morning. Okay. So that balance. <laughs> Life is about balance. It is. I'm not good at balance. I've lately learned to balance. I um, I love indulgence. I really do. I love this city because this city often says yes and very rarely says no. And I think food, you know, food is what keeps us alive, but food can be quite indulgent, uh, especially as you see the mounds of butter and the amount of heavy cream and the fact that on day three in New Orleans, you may not have had a raw or fresh vegetable because we've, Aww. we've uh, you know, a lot of it tends to be uh, a little bit, uh, you know, heavy in some places. And I, I think indulgence is part of, of who we are and it's part of food, but I think you can be indulgent and seasonal and fresh. And we're so lucky that we have that opportunity. Yeah, I, you know. Also on my eating agenda are Pesh, um, great grilled seafood restaurant. Does Absolutely. a lot more than just grilled seafood, but but very elemental cookery, not overly indulgent, not butter sodden. Um, and Shia, um, you know, a, a great celebration of the possibilities of vegetables and, and of bakery. Um, so, yeah, there's balance even in that. In this New Orleans moment when restaurants are thriving, there's a beautiful range of restaurants. Absolutely. And I think that kind of goes, uh, you know, back when I was looking through your book and uh, looking at what you're calling kind of a more, I guess, a more modern interpretation of Southern cuisine or just more modern time frame of Southern cuisine. And we see what is changing and what is happening and all these groups that are influencing. And we see things like that are happening at Shia. It's kind of exciting to see this 
this new, fresh, you know, well, the, added the, to the pot, if you will. This book I wrote, The Pot Liquor Papers, is it looks at the South over a 60-year span. From 1955, it begins with the excuse me, it begins in 1955 with the Montgomery bus boycotts um, at a moment when um, food was a leverage that African-American cooks used toward freedom struggles, toward um, gaining um, access to the ballot, gaining economic freedom in an American South that didn't offer much. Um, and my book ends in 2015 is this kind of true multicultural South that New Orleans has long hinted at, I might add. But my book ends as this true multicultural South comes into focus and restaurants like Shia cooking Israeli, modern Israeli food become Southern restaurants, become New Orleans restaurants. And that's really interesting because it means that, you know, it, it reflects the ways in which the New Orleans and the American South have never been static, always welcoming new peoples, always embracing new cuisines. And this is a really bold and, and beautiful moment to think about that. You know, you think about a restaurant like Mofo, where Mike Galata um, is sampling both Vietnamese and, and New Orleans traditions and drawing on local produce and fish and the like. It's, it's a really dynamic, dynamic time to be alive and eating in Louisiana. You know, and just hearing you say that, my brain's going 100 miles an hour of things that I go, I got to ask Mr. John this, I got to ask him that. And, you know, I go back to, okay, you sit down and you're going to write this book. Mm -hmm. How do you determine where you're going to start and how do you know when it's done? <laughs> Good question. Um, you know, I mentioned this, I began this book in 1955. That's when the South starts to change. Um, you know, this region has a tragic history. The imprint of racism, the imprint of slavery on the American South is, is profound. Um, and, um, and so I began my book in 1955 as the bus boycotts begin, as the modern civil rights movement ignites, as the South begins to change. Um, so this book is about progress in the American South. It's about change um, in the face of adversity. Um, and food's one of the ways to glimpse that. Um, so I began there because the South I know, I was born in 62. So the South I know begins to come into focus in 55. Now, I've written one little book myself, and the advice that I was given uh, by my cousin, uh, Buddy Stahl, he said, Amy, don't get too caught up and give yourself a deadline. And on that deadline, it's done, because otherwise you will work on this one book for the rest of your life. <laughs> so how, you know, how did you know I'm going to stop at, you know, 300 pages? How did, how, you know, how, how do you know when you've right. put everything that you can into one book? Um, you know, I wrote this book longer than it is now. It's 300 and something pages now. It, it, some iteration of it was 700 and something pages. I knew I'd finished when I had carved away the dross of the 400 pages that hit the floor, um, <laughs> when I could see the musculature of the story underneath. Um, to me, that's as much a part of writing as is writing, you know, editing, cutting, um, you know, 
you fall in love sometimes with your own writing, and that's the stuff you need to cut. Um, and having the having the vision to know what to cut and what to keep, um, that's when I know I have a book, when I start cutting hard. Okay. No, when you're cutting hard and you said, you know, falling in, in love with the, you know, the stuff that you wrote, I imagine you fell in love with a lot of people in this process too because yeah. the stories and the, the impact that had to have been on your life personally in the process. Talk about that a little. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the characters that I find um, most inspiring, um, most emboldening is a woman named Georgia Gilmore. And Georgia Gilmore... I mentioned 1955 a moment ago. Georgia Gilmore is very much a player from that moment. So Gilmore was a cook in Montgomery, Alabama. She worked on the railroad and literally laid track. She was a midwife. She raised six children, sent them to Catholic schools in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, Miss Gilmore was at the very first meeting of the Montgomery Improvement Association when, when a group of African-American working-class folk decide that they're going to quit the buses in Montgomery. They follow the lead of Georgia Gilmore and um, Rosa Parks to refuse to sit in the back of the bus and claim their seats in the front. Um, this cook, Georgia Gilmore, was there at that original meeting of the Montgomery Improvement Association. She shows up with a hamper full of fried chicken and white bread. And she's making fried chicken sandwiches, kind of with a bone in um, on white bread and selling them to her fellow parishioners to raise money for the bus boycotts because if you're going to start an alternate transportation system, if you're going to quit the buses, you've got to come up with something else to get to your job across town with a cook or a maid or a laborer. Um, and so Gilmore sells these fried chicken sandwiches on the stoop of Holt Street Baptist Church. Um, and by way of her cooking, and this continues on throughout the early years of the movement, by way of her cooking, she literally fuels the movement. And, you know, I feel like that's that's such a strong thing. You know, her cooking fuels the movement. You know, food fuels us. There's right. this whole uh, circle. But is it? I had someone on the show not too long ago, and I said one of the things that's exciting for me is to see that one person can make a difference. And little mm -hmm. things that we do right. are bigger in the grand scheme of things when you look at the big picture and you step back 10 years later and you go, this is what started it or this made an impact. And so, you know, to hear Georgia Gilmore's story and to go, she fueled a lot, a lot more than just fried chicken yeah. sandwiches. Well, you know? that's, that's the thing to your point. Her story is still resonant today. You know, her actions in 1955 reverberate out to retell her story is to revisit her strength and her brilliance um, and her determination, the way she led America um, in its own kind of reconciliation. So, yeah, it's 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 one small act, um, and it's my job as a writer to pay attention to those small acts and make sense of how they mean, why they mean, and what they mean. And, you know, when I, when I see, you know, the potlicker papers, and I start thinking, okay, is it, my first thought, you know, when I I said, okay, it's not a cookbook, it's not about potlicker. This is about this is about life and food and how people are shaping the lives of others through food and how food shapes our lives. And it's just it it's kind of fun to see that 
how that whole process happens and that it's probably still going on today. And, you know, 10 years from now, someone's going to step back and go, this is what's happening in Louisiana now. Right. Well, if you think about the ways this city has changed, even post-Katrina, with the influx of Mexican-American laborers and Central American laborers, the foods of New Orleans are in flux now. Um, they're changing. They're accommodating new tastes, new techniques, new peoples. Um, it takes a little perspective to see that, right? So the beautiful cultural dynamism and processes that are at work now in New Orleans and affecting the food here, we might have a hint of it now. Um, you know, I've, I've seen walking the streets of New Orleans over the last two days, I've seen three Arepas places. Mm -hmm. That's a hint. Um, that's a hint of what New Orleans food is becoming. I, I feel like after Katrina, I used to tell people, oh, my goodness, give us 10 years and you're going to see pupusas on the menus that John Bash has and all these people because this food is uh, all these cultures that are coming in in the last 10 years are really making a difference and changing it. And I wonder if. You know, I feel like it's a, a difficult dynamic for people that are like old school New Orleans, classic, you know, Creole cuisine, those heavy cream covered vegetables and, you know, looking at their French and Spanish and Italian ancestry to go, am I losing? Yeah. Like, is the tradition that we know at risk because we're accepting all this new stuff or is it, you know, what's happening? Well, I mean, you know, culture is a process, an ongoing process, not a product. New Orleans cuisine wasn't undertaken in 1720 and finished in 1820, and it has not been static since. Um, you know, that's what's so beautiful about paying attention to, writing about um, Southern food culture and New Orleans food culture. So, you know, someone who fears um, for the loss of Creole cuisine, I'd submit that post-Katrina, New Orleans um, and New Orleanians have seen root, have um, kind of brought a renewed interest to that cuisine. Um, they've kind of doubled down on old guard Creole cuisine and New Orleans cuisine. And at the same time, they've embraced this kind of multicultural future tense cuisine. You can do both. They're not, they're not, um, there's no zero-sum game here. They don't cancel each other out. Um, they complement. Um, those two run on parallel tracks. I remember, you know, not long after Restaurant August reopened, John Besh was doing, you know, shrimp creole with Vietnamese flavors embedded within it, you know. The two are in complement. They're not in conflict. And I, I, you know, I love to hear that. And when you said, you know, culture is a process, and it really is. And one thing that we do here in South Louisiana is if you bring something we love, we're going to steal it and call it our own. You're part, like, you're in now. Like, it's ours. We claimed you. And I think we're seeing that. And when you said double down, what's exciting for me as a, a diner is to know that I have my two kinds of food. I can go to, you know, Arno's and I can get the turtle soup that I always order. And when I walk into Arno's or Galatoire's or yeah. any of those old restaurants, I order the exact same 
thing every time because I know that's what I want from that restaurant. But then I go to, you know, Cavan or to Pesh or to one of these other places and the menu's changing and it's dynamic. And I go, okay, so do I want to be challenged and excited or am I going for my comfort? But now I have those options. Right. Well, there's there's a kind of repertory cooking in New Orleans where you know, there's a canon of dishes, and we know them. There's, there's the you know the dish I had at Upper Line, the drum with um, Meunier and crab. It's a dish that's replicated all across the town, um, and and that kind of repertory cooking is a lot of what draws me to the city. You know, a beautiful, roux-based dark gumbo, um, like I might have at Cochon or at. Upper line as well. Um, that kind of cooking um, draws me to your city. Um, at the same time, um, I'm excited about what's out there on the horizon. Um, you know, I look at someone like Justin Devillier and the playfulness and smarts of his food. Um, look at so many chefs. Um, Susan Brightson, who has long been embracing the reality that New Orleans is a port city that brings people and products from all across the world. Her cooking has long shown that at Bayonne. And, you know, when you consider that we are a port city and for our whole history, food, cultures, ingredients, all these things have been coming up the mouth of the Mississippi River. But I feel like now, because the we are so global, you know, in our world, mm -hmm. that we're realizing that ingredients that are growing in the deltas of Vietnam will grow here. And so now there's this international exchange of not only food, but ingredients that we have a similar climate. It grows. Now we need to embrace that too. One of the examples I use in the Potlicker papers is of um, Vietnamese crawfish cafes, which um, really begin on the, on, the, um, on the Gulf Coast, the Gulf of Mexico in Houston and cities like that, wherein um, Vietnamese immigrants are taking a traditional, um, or at least Cajun food as they have found it, um, crawfish boils from Cajun country. And they're oftentimes incorporating things like a little bit of lemongrass in the boil. Um, and they're constructing cafes in cities like Houston and Biloxi, Mississippi, um, that um, are like Vietnamese Cajun crawfish restaurants. And they're using the iconography of New Orleans. It's all confused. It's all synthesized. They're doing things like turkey neck egg rolls. So the turkey neck you might boil crawfish with, pulling the meat off, Yum. wrapping that up in a wrapper <laughs> and deep frying it. They're doing loaded fries with turkey neck, pulled meat on top of that. Um, they're doing, you know, crawfish boiled in lemongrass broth. They're doing noak mia. They're doing all this range of foods that um, reflect Vietnam, reflect Cajun country, reflect a broader kind of Gulf Coast food culture. It's beautiful. It, I think it's exciting because we, you know, we saw that in the last, you know, 12 years, chefs had an opportunity, you know, during the rebuilding process of the city uh, maybe initially it wasn't an opportunity, but we look back now and we go, it was an opportunity True. to see other places and the way 
other people do food and to bring those techniques and ideas back to New Orleans where maybe, you know, 15 years ago we were much more rigid in what we expected to happen in our kitchens and what we expected to happen on the plate. Well, there's been a long process of kind of New Orleans digging deep into its culinary history and trying to figure out, you know, who are the real champions of New Orleans food culture. And I, I write about, in here, I write about Rudy Lombard, um, who had led the desegregation of New Orleans restaurants in the 1960s. Um, in the 1970s, he publishes a book um, with a guy named Nathaniel Burton, a chef, um, called Creole Feast. You know this book? I have that book, yes. Um, that book was really important. I, I devoted a good bit of, um, good number of pages to it in the Potlicker Papers. That book said that if you're in love with New Orleans cuisine, if you're in love with the grand French creolized dishes of New Orleans, you're in love with black cooking. You're in love with the knowledge and craft and and intelligence of African-American cooks. Um, they are the men behind the line at Antoine's and Arnaud's and Galatois. Those cooks weren't getting their due in the 1970s. And by way of Creole feast, Rudy Lombard said they should get their due. And it was interesting. I, I had a conversation not long ago with, um, with the biography of Jacques Pepin. Jacques Pepin, the great French-born chef, American now, um, and Pepin told his biographer, Barry Estabrook, that when he arrived from France and kind of regarded the American culinary landscape, he, he said he expected that the chefs, when America finally kind of grasped the importance of food, when Americans kind of culinary renaissance began, he expected that the men and women who would soar, who would, who would become our heroes of food, would be old guard African-American men and women because he saw in them the knowledge and expertise and drive that he saw in the cooks of France. Um, it didn't come to pass that way. Um, but it's an example of the ways in which I think um, our appreciation for New Orleans cuisine and for Southern cuisine more broadly, we keep rethinking it. We keep seeing it anew. We turn it. We see a new facet. Um, and that's one of the things that's beautiful about from my perspective, the world, the work that you do and I do, we get to see food anew. We get to regard it in new ways often, and we learn every time we do that. And and that's it's the food to me is lifetime learning. Mm -hmm. like you are learning. You're learning the culture, the history, the people, the stories, everything behind what's happening mm -hmm. to get food to you. Right. When you say, you know, Creole food and Southern food in a, a broader context, what is your definition of what is Southern food? That's a hard, you know, just like if you and I were going to try to define Creole food, um, I just had lunch with Donald Link, who's been doing a lot of research about the idea of Creole and the practice of Creole cooking in New Orleans over time. Those definitions are so thorny. Um, they're so multivalenced, it's really hard to get to the core of it. Um, when asked that question about what is Southern food, I kind of think of it as um, a fitful dance of black and white um, utilizing Native American ingredients 
to craft this thing we call Southern food. But that's how it comes to be. What is singular about Southern food is that interplay between black and white. Um, that's what's stamped our food. You know, you certainly can see it in ingredients, you know, something like okra um, of West African origin that's so definitive here in New Orleans and throughout the South. Um, but you also can see it more broadly um, in the people who imprinted on this place. And if you want to think about this region, understand this region, food's kind of a portal to all of it. And that's kind of the way I tried to write this book. So if you, it's, it is a history of the South told through food. It's not a history of Southern food. Yes. Um, and that's a small difference, but I think. But it's a big difference. Yeah. I think it offers, I think food offers us a way to apprehend all the triumphs of this place and all the tragedies of this place too. Now, whenever I, uh, you know, I think of Southern food and I, you know, I think of the food that I grew up with here in South Louisiana. And a lot of times I don't personally identify it as Southern food because I identify it as Cajun food or Creole food. Right. But as I get further into the Mississippi Delta region, right. then I start to go, okay, that's where the Southern food comes from. But, um, you know, the term pot liquor, mm -hmm. that was not a term that I grew up with. And I, I had a chef from that area and she would call the, what I, I call gravy, any liquid on a plate I can dip bread in. So I would call it <laughs> gravy. Um, right. And uh, she would say, no, that's the pot liquor and the greens. So talk about the terminology that's used in sure. Southern food. Um, well, that, that term pot liquor, pot liquor is the distilled essence at the bottom of a pot of greens. You know, after the hock of pork has been bobbing for long, after it's been on the back of the stove for a long while, after you serve the greens out, um, the liquid that remains, the kind of swampy residue of that cookery um, is a pot liquor. And, you know, in some ways that seems and has often been referred to as something that was a byproduct of cooking. The reality is, is that's where the nutrients reside. They're leached out as the greens cook, and that broth is hyper-concentrated with nutrients, really good for you. Um, and during enslavement, um, you know, it was common for um, slave masters to take the greens and deign to give the um, broth to the enslaved and oftentimes crumble cornbread up in there. And the subversive thing about that was like, you know, the nutrients yeah. reside there. there. That was what it was strength in those, in that pot liquor. Um, so for me, pot liquor is both that historical food, um, but it's also kind of a metaphor. If you're going to tell a story of the South and you distill it all down, and what do you get? And hopefully what you get is my book. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, my goodness, Mr. John. I could sit and talk to you for about two well. hours. So, um, But we don't have that kind of time, and we're um, we're almost out of time. So I just want you to tell our listeners um, where they can find your book and um, who's the kind of person that should get it. Um, well, to, to find my book, um, most any bookstore in New Orleans will have it. Um, Octavia or Garden District, I know. Um, you also um, can use any of the online retailers. It's it's published by Penguin Press. It's called the Pot Liquor Papers, um, and it's it's widely available. Um, the um, what was the second question? I got some caught up in selling the, my book. Who's the right person uh, to read it? Is this for right everybody, person? or is this? I mean, it's it's a it is not a it is a serious um, work. Um, but it is not a boring work. It's not, um, 
it's not you know a a uh, it's not a ponderous work of thoughtful scholarship. It's a readable account of progress over the South over sixty years. I think anyone who wants to understand how New Orleans came to be in the last really certainly the last sixty years the most important food city in the American South, I think they'd find it interesting. There's a lot of New Orleans, a lot of Louisiana in this book, from Prudhomme to Lagasse to Susan Spicer to Ruby Lombard, about whom we talked. Um, and I think if you're also interested in the um, the kind of post-civil rights movement history of the South, what did the South become? What did New Orleans become after the civil rights movement? I think there's something for you there, too. So I think we can all learn a lot from it. So. so, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Mm-hmm. Here in the studio, we have Mr. John T. Edge. Um, please go out and get a copy of his new book, The Pot Liquor Papers. You've been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host, Chef Amy Sins. Until next time, ciao.